Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The word of the Lord. So, I don't know that we uh, often enough consider the uh, meaninglessness that life can be. Especially in our modern times when there is so much to distract us, so much to pleasure us, so much to entertain us. Uh, It's interesting that we certainly have this longing for meaning and identity and understanding of truth, and yet we so rarely think critically about the ways our lives are really void of such things. We often uh, lack an ability to uh, possess this nuanced epistemology or this understanding of knowledge. And every generation, uh, in every time, in every place, is going to have to struggle with this, going to have to struggle with meaning and identity and purpose and truth. And in our modern times, we're, of course, no different. Like, we too are struggling with such things. You know, in times past, meaning and identity and purpose and truth uh, were often rooted in things like one's role or place in a family or a tribe, and that's, of course, still the reality for many around the world. Uh, In other times, maybe more specifically in our own uh, culture, There was often a purpose or a meaning that was rooted in one's intelligence or achievements in life. And while those things are certainly influences on us today, I don't actually think that's largely the dominant idea anymore. Today, I think, we live mostly in a hyper-individualistic, postmodern society, and much could be said about that, but in essence, that results in a society that often believes that meaning and identity are self-defining ventures, and that my meaning and identity are rooted in my own self-expression, something I discover from within myself. And that uh, there really is no uh, universally applicable truth, but rather my truth is my truth, your truth is 
your truth. This is kind of the relative nature of truth today. But the book of Ecclesiastes says to all of us, whether we're from an agrarian, tribal, family-oriented culture of yesteryear or other parts of the world, or we're from this modern, contemporary, post-enlightenment, post-modern urban center that believes truth is relative, regardless of where we might come from on truth, Ecclesiastes pushes us to say, whatever you think truth is, whatever meaning you think that you've discovered, it's all nonsense. You think you've discovered meaning, truth, and identity, but you have nothing. Everything that you think matters is actually meaningless. It's vanity. It's all futile. And that we're fools for thinking that we can discover anything meaningful out in the world or from within ourselves. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. And happy Valentine's Day, too. Now, today we start this series, this Lenten series, a series, um, a season, which is a a a season of reflection leading up to Easter by trying to understand why the author of Ecclesiastes so pointedly rejects all notions of meaning that we claim. To see what this teacher of Ecclesiastes has to share, I want to start today's series by looking at three things in particular from the passage we just heard read. First, I want to take a look at the meaninglessness of meaning. Second, we'll take a look at the pursuit of meaning. And then finally, the source of meaning. All right, so first, the meaninglessness of meaning. Uh, first, let's, let's take, just do uh, just a few minutes on context for this book. Right? Who is writing this book of Ecclesiastes? Frankly, no one really knows who's written this book. What we do know is that the author is distinct from the one giving the lessons throughout the book. The giving of the lessons is um, uh, presented as the, or sorry, the one giving the lessons is presented as the teacher. Now, there's debates about how one ought to read Ecclesiastes, especially in light of, you know, it seems like we have one person that's writing the words, then you have another person who's actually giving the words, and there are some that have argued that um, the author is referencing another person. There's others who are saying, well, the author and the teacher are the same people, but he's just using a, a third-person character to present some of these ideas. Again, none of that honestly really matters ultimately to trying to get at the root of what's being presented. But what we have here is this teacher presenting to us knowledge, or at least his understanding of knowledge. Some other translations don't call him teacher, they call him preacher. And again, some have claimed that uh, this is King Solomon who's writing. I think there's probably good reasons to reject that assertion. Um, But again, none of it really matters. But here's what's interesting as you're reading through there. As you're reading through all of Ecclesiastes, it seems like whoever this person is, whoever this teacher is, that this teacher is incredibly cynical about life. And you can read Ecclesiastes through that cynicism or perceived cynicism, but I don't actually think he's being critical at all. Rather, the teacher is forcing his students, those listening, to critically think about their lives and the ways that they've sought purpose. Uh, I heard one person compare the book of Ecclesiastes to a college philosophy professor, where the professor is pushing the students to rethink an understanding of meaning and identity and truth. And most specifically, the teacher is making a case about life when God 
is not at the center. In many ways, this is the Socratic method for you students of philosophy. It's pushing with questions, forcing us to question everything. I mean, this is the only book of the Bible that's almost entirely written from a, a secular perspective. It's a really fascinating book. The book is asking these probing questions to force us to evaluate the underlying suppositions, presuppositions of all of our beliefs. And some question if the book should even be in the Bible because as you read through it, it actually doesn't give a whole lot of answers to the questions. In fact, it leaves you kind of waffling around trying to make sense of all of this. Some have actually said this should be the, the first book of the Bible because it asks all the questions and then it's the rest of the Bible that's going to give you all of the answers. But here's how the, here's how the teacher begins. The teacher ushers us into this challenge, these questions, by what will be inevitably a constant refrain throughout the, the book. In verse 2, he says this. He says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything is utterly meaningless. Other translations say that um, everything is vanity or futile or nonsense. Now, that word meaningless uh, is translated from the Hebrew word hevel. And hevel is actually quite a difficult word to translate, which is why when you, whenever you look at different translations, you'll get a slightly different word. The word literally means vapor or smoke or breath. And in verse 14, we kind of get a real sense of what the authors or what the teacher is trying to show us, where he describes this chasing after the wind. Other ways to think about that, it's, it's like trying to hevel, it's purposeless. It's a purposeless venture with no chance of succeeding. And so throughout the book, the teacher is saying everything is hevel. You know, work is hevel. Pleasure is hevel. Pursuits of justice are hevel. Wisdom, righteousness, and treasure, they're all hevel. They're like trying to grab on to smoke. Your pursuit of meaning, according to the teacher, is hevel. It's like trying to grab smoke, a pointless venture. And again, that might sound incredibly cynical, but it's actually incredibly clarifying and insightful. The reason being is because of how the teacher understands the pursuit of meaning. All right, let's take a look at that, the pursuit of meaning. Uh, the teacher <clears throat> pretty much follows up that statement on meaningless, meaninglessness by explaining why that is the case. And he asks the question that frames a lot of the rest of the book. He posits this in verse 3 by saying, What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And then if you go on from there, pretty much from uh, verse 3 on, it's a pretty depressing, <laughs> seemingly depressing uh, list of verses. He goes on to argue. He says, listen, generations, they're going to come and go. In verse 11, he says that no one will remember you one day. I mean, think about it. You probably can't, you probably can't even name for me your great, great, great grandparents off the top of your head. Maybe some of you can. Many of us can't. In most cases, no one cares or thinks about that anymore, including you. And they're your own family. Plus, as he says, those who have not yet been born will also one day be forgotten. It's just an endless cycle of being born, living, and being forgotten. Uh, if you ever accomplish anything in your life, that's great. 
But even those with the greatest accomplishments, at best, are going to end up in a history book. And at some point, new history is just inevitably going to take, are going to matter in the long term. In verses 5 through 7, he speaks of the futility of life, especially in relation to the enduring realities of nature. Right? The most enduring aspects of life are actually the laws of nature, laws that actually care nothing for you. And what I mean by that is, think about it. We build these grand cities, don't we, as an example? Grand cities, they become like the crowning achievement of our greatness, But all it takes is some tectonic plates that want to shift or some hurricane that wants to come across our path and it's gone. It's all gone. Verse 8 basically says that uh, if you think you're smart and experienced and cultured, that's cute. But see, nothing ultimately is going to matter when you think about the fact that there is no possible way that in a thousand lifetimes you could accumulate any meaningful amount of knowledge. There is always more to know, always more to learn, always more to see. You know, it's funny, uh, you know, if you think about who are some of the, the, the experts that we have amongst us in our society. When I think about experts, I tend to think of people like those with PhDs. What's interesting about people with PhDs, and some of you in the room might identify with this, it's really, being a PhD really is less about you being an expert on a particular topic. And I actually think it's more that you're an expert on what you don't actually know about that topic. No matter how much we could possibly accumulate knowledge-wise, you realize there's a vast amount that you'll never be able to know. When we think about, you may think about new ideas or new ways of thinking, or maybe you've had some kind of new invention, right? Even, uh, even those kinds of things, verse 9 and 10, says, What has will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It, ha- it was already here long ago. It was here before our time. I mean, again, none of your accomplishments are ultimately going to matter in the grand scheme of the universe. Everything you care about is Hevel. Our identity, our career pursuits, our education, our families, our friends, even our pursuits of justice and careers, whatever it is, it's all going to be forgotten and destroyed. I've shared this quote before by a famous uh, philosopher, Bertrand Russell, who said this. He said that all the inspiration of the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to the extinction in the vast depths of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. I wonder, how many of us have the courage to be that honest about our situation? I mean, have you really sat with the things that matter most in your life? Can you be that honest about the things that you claim to be so dear about who you are? Now, here's the deal. I don't think so. I don't think we can actually handle being that kind of honest. Because when life is that kind of meaningless, it inevitably causes us to lose a desire to continue living. I mean, even though we might be confronted with this meaninglessness of life, we still demand that our life have some kind of meaning. And so, because we demand it, 
We conjure up various ways to discover meaning for ourselves. And often, that meaning can be quite hollow when pressed. Now, throughout the series, we're going to be looking at various ways that we pursue meaning, and frankly, we'll be questioning the, the validity of all of them. But if I could maybe summarize three broad approaches that we tend to use to pursue meaning, I think it's helpful for us going forward and how we can assess them well. And here's the three that I think we could probably put everything under. Number one, I think often <clears throat> some of us find meaning and purpose in our accomplishments. Others find meaning and purpose in pleasure. And others find meaning and purpose in what I'll call principled determination. Right, let me explain what I mean by all three of those. First, with accomplishments. I think many of us find our purpose and meaning in life through our accomplishments. There's this post-enlightenment idea that humans can achieve marvelous greatness if we would just work and learn and strive and build and invent. And in many ways, this has actually produced for us the wonders of modern technology and education. Uh, there have been really good things that have come out of the enlightenment. None of us, I would imagine, want to go back to living before progress that's been made as a result of the Enlightenment. However, as Bertrand Russell noted, all those accomplishments of human genius will be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. So these accomplishments, what do they do? I mean, they're really just serving as a means of distracting ourselves, I think, until the inevitable end. Right? They become a means of self-glory along the way as we wait for the end. It's very much the Tower of Babel, often. The other way, though, that we tend to approach meaning and purpose is not just through accomplishments. I think others find their purpose and meaning through pleasure. I mean, for many, the pursuits of comforts and pleasures are the defining mark of meaning. Right? I can spend my whole life, though, <laughs> acquiring stuff experiencing physical pleasures, and as the book of Ecclesiastes states, that we want to eat, drink, and be merry. But in the end, have you ever thought about what is pleasure? I mean, what is pleasure if it's inevitably amounting to nothing? Again, it just becomes a lifetime of distraction to hopefully be comfortable until the inevitable end. The other way, though, I think that's many try to find meaning is, again, what we'll call principled determination. And here's what I mean by that. There are some who focus their life and their meaning on particular tasks in the world, right? So there might be some who would say, you know what, you're probably right. Life is meaningless. I refuse to let it be meaningless. And so I'm going to create a meaning for myself. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to save the environment, I'm going to work for justice. I'm going to work for an equitable society. I'm going to try to be a good person. I'm going to try to love and be loved. And those in this group often can't quite articulate why all of those pursuits seem virtuous, but they just kind of intuitively know that it's a good thing that they ought to pursue. And I see this a lot in justice work. Uh, you, see, you, have, you hear people say, you know, we need to love each other, we need to accept each other, we need to respect one another, we need to fight for the equality of one another. But why? Why should those things matter? Well, the response might be because it's the right thing to do. But why? Why is it the right thing to do? Oh, the answer might then just be, well, because people matter. But why? 
Why do people matter? Why are any of those things good? There's so often an inability to answer those questions, and so what does it just become? It becomes this just grit and determination to just feel like there's a sense of meaning and progress in the world. I mean, all of us here are probably going to find ourselves pursuing one of those three things, accomplishments, pleasures, or principal determination, in order to find a sense of meaning in our lives. But that leaves us, though, of course, with the, the ultimate question, is that really the best we've got? Is it really the best that we can possibly possess to just conjure up perceived meaning and purpose in life? Is that really all we can do is just distract ourselves until the inevitable end? Well, according to, again, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, yeah, that's all you can do. Spend your life distracting yourself until the end. But like I said before, remember, Ecclesiastes probably should be the first book of the Bible that's just giving you the problem, just pushing you on the questions. Because what if, if we were to step outside of Ecclesiastes and the questions it pushes us on, what if there were more? What if there were opportunities for us to have meaning and purpose that aren't futile, that aren't fragile, but rather rooted in something far greater than we could possibly even comprehend, which brings us now finally to the source of meaning. John 1, John 1, 1, famous verse. Let me read it for you. It says this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 14 says that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Maybe you've heard that verse before, but let me speak to a couple of things there. You might know this, but the Greek word for, uh, the Greek word, for word that's translated there uh, is the word logos. Now, the Apostle uh, John, who's writing this, uh, he's choosing that word logos very intentionally because he wants this passage to serve as an apologetic, an argument that would resonate with both the Greek philosophers who might have been reading it at the time, as well as his Jewish brothers and sisters of the day. So for the Greek philosophers, the Logos related to their understanding of reason and meaning and truth. And so to them, John is saying that the Logos is reason, it's meaning, it's truth. Not that the Logos is pointing to the way of reason and meaning and truth, but rather it is meaning, reason, and truth. But then again, he's also writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters, and for them, that word began to conjure up Old Testament concepts of wisdom, a wisdom that existed before the creation of the world, which brought the creation into existence. And then on top of that, the Jewish thinking was that the word represented a person. In Psalm 33, the author says that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. In other words, the logos is the the summation of existence and uh, purpose and wisdom and truth. The logos is the meaning of life. But then according to John, who is that Logos? Of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is reason and meaning and truth and purpose and wisdom. He is not like other religious leaders or founders who claim to know the way to such things. Rather, Jesus is the source of such things. It was him 
who created the world and the purpose and meaning of the world has all flown through him. He has created all things and he sustains all things. It is through him alone that there can be meaning and purpose and truth found. And here's our dilemma. Here's where this all leaves us. If that's the case, if all meaning and purpose flow through out of Jesus, for he is the source, that means that outside of Jesus, everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. Why? Because he is meaning. All attempts at finding meaning outside of him are going to ultimately terminate on the futility of our achievements, of our pursuits of pleasure, of our determination. Everything that you ever do, everything that we ever aspire to be, everything that we think matters outside of him leads nowhere. But when we recognize that he is this source of meaning, when we begin to discover that uh, we as a result of seeing him as a source of meaning, we begin to discover that everything actually does have meaning when in, when in him. Outside of him, everything is meaningless. Inside of him, everything is meaning-filled. Let me explain to you what I mean. Consider those three broad categories we talked about. Accomplishments, pleasure, and uh, principal determination. With accomplishments, you know, that whole post-enlightenment idea that humans can achieve marvelous greatness, that's actually true. And has meaning because humans were made in the image of God as a special creation. That is why we can pursue the ideas of the Enlightenment, believing that there is much that we can accomplish. But taking Jesus out as the source of human greatness, though, what does that leave us with? I mean, all that really leaves us with is that we're the result of random processes that over time created a large frontal cortex, and as a result, we can think of ourselves as being great, but apparently our brains are still too small to really be able to admit that nothing ultimately matters. But with Jesus at the center, our achievements and creativity matter infinitely because he is the Logos. All of those accomplishments are pointing us not to our own greatness, but to his greatness. Think about pleasure. The desire to live a life of pleasure it says there is a God who created the pleasure. But when we take Jesus out as the center and the source of that pleasure, it leaves us with nothing more than the distractions that hopefully we can maintain until death. But with Jesus as our Logos, even pleasure has meaning, if experienced in his purposes for it. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 is a passage there that I think about often that just says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You know, my wife often uh, says, she says this all the time, but certain foods lead her to doxology and praise as they should, right? Pleasures of this world point us to Jesus, the creator of such things, if we embrace that pleasure in the way that he intended. You know, the pleasures of coffee in the morning, glory to God, has meaning. The pleasures of getting into bed after a long day, glory to God, have meaning, The pleasures of sex in the context of God's good design for a husband and wife and covenantal promises, glory to God, have meaning. Take Jesus out, though. Food and rest and sex and a host of other pleasures, they're just distractions until we meet death. But in Christ, they're infinitely more because they're pointing us to the one who has created that pleasure 
principled determination. You know, what about those who they want to make the world a better place through justice and love and virtue? That desire is exactly right. And that is a good thing, but it's only exactly right. It's only a good thing because for those of us that have been made in the image of God, as humans, we have been made in this image of God to reflect his characteristics. So he then is the source of justice and love and virtue, which is why it is good for us to embody and embrace such things. But take Jesus out of our pursuit of such things. They just become futile. If this is you, and you want a world of justice and love and virtue, just know within God's good design and within his desire to reflect his characteristics in you, those things matter. But you know what? You're never going to eliminate injustice. There's always going to be more injustice. There's always going to be hatred. It will always persist. And so even your pursuits of justice are meaningless unless you keep at the center the one who is ultimately just, ultimately good, ultimately loving, and who calls his people, his creation, to reflect such characteristics. Even those pursuits have infinite meaning when we see them as something pointing us to the one who has established them. Outside of Jesus, everything is meaningless. It will all be crushed and burned in the end. But inside of Jesus, they're all infinitely valuable because he is ultimately the one it's pointing us to. And I'll close with this. The problem, of course, is why we so often remove Jesus from the equation. All right, so let's just take for a second that everything that I've just said is true. In order to acknowledge Jesus as our Logos, it also means that we need to acknowledge him as our Lord, It just does. It means that we need to lay down our lives before him, to center our lives on him. If Jesus is going to be our Logos, the source of all meaning, then we need to submit our desires for greatness to him and his purposes. We need to submit our desire for pleasure, for his intention for that pleasure. We need to submit our desire for a better world, to align with his understanding and his desire for a more just and loving and virtuous world. It means laying down our lives before him. And so often we just don't want to do that. We would rather be the lords of our own lives and live a life of complete meaninglessness than to lay our lives down before the Logos and find infinite meaning. And the result, the reason for that is because ultimately we don't want a God we want to be our own. And the reason that we can be so confident that God is loving and gracious is because he sees us in that condition. In First John 14, I just read it, says this, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What is that? The logos, the source of all meaning and truth and purpose, took on flesh, came to us, to rescue us from the meaninglessness of our own pursuits. He came in order to accomplish a work necessary to break through the rebellion that we all have, that keeps us from wanting to give our lives fully and completely to him. It's out of love and grace and mercy that he accomplishes such things, to bring us out of darkness into the light so that we might experience true meaning. The cross of Christ is the destruction of that darkness, 
for those who would believe in him. His resurrection is the victory of his light, a light that pierces through that darkness. And my prayer would be that for all of us, whether we've acknowledged Christ as, our, as that Savior and Lord or not, I think to varying degrees, we all need his spirit to be working that kind of work in us, breaking us through the debt, breaking through that darkness, again, revealing to us light that we might look on him for all purpose and meaning, taking our eyes off the fragile meaning that we so often pursue. That's my prayer for myself, my prayer for all of us. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you that we can be presented with the meaninglessness of life and not see that or hear that as a weight or a burden or to bring us to despair, but we can hear it as hope. And the reason we can hear it as hope is because this world is going to constantly fail us, and many of us have experienced that in tragic and horrible, painful ways. But Lord, when we trust the work of your Son, everything about our life is meaning-filled. We might not fully understand that meaning, It might take us time to embrace it fully and to see what you're doing. But God, we thank you for the grace that you've made it clear to us that outside of you, everything is hevel. Everything is meaningless. Inside of you, everything has meaning and purpose. The good, the bad, the ugly. They all have the opportunity to point us to the glories of who you are and what you desire to do in us and through us. And so God, I pray that you would do it that, God, you would help us see this and that it would cause us to rejoice for what you've done in Jesus on our behalf. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.